O Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, we claim the cross, the grave, and the skies as our promise. Infuse the power of your hope in us, this place, and in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Have you noticed in your reading of the Gospels that you will not find, not in any of the four Gospels, in fact, not anywhere in the New Testament, you will not find a description of the resurrection of Christ? Of course, all four Gospels report on the event, but it's the aftermath of the event. Nowhere will you find the event recorded. One of my favorite writers is a New Englander from Vermont. His name Frederick Beekner, still alive. In his wonderful book, The Magnificent Defeat, he makes a profound statement. I want to put, put uh, his words, Beekner's words, on the screen for you. Ponder this with me. Beekner writing, If we are to believe Christ is really alive with all that that implies, then we have to believe without proof. And of course, that is the only way it could be. Now, now, follow his reasoning here. If it could be somehow proved, then we would have no choice but to believe. We would lose our freedom not to believe, and in the very moment that we lost that freedom, we would cease to be human beings. Our love of God would have been forced upon us, and love that is forced is, of course, not love at all. Love must be freely given. Love must live in the freedom not to love. It must take risks. Now, here it comes. Love must be prepared to suffer even as Jesus on the cross suffered, and part of that suffering is doubt. Some of you are here today with nagging doubt in the dark, in the deep recesses of your soul. There are questions that simply have not been answered to your satisfaction. Maybe Beekner is right. Your doubt today as a part of your suffering with Christ on His cross. What was that opening line of His? If we are to believe that Christ is alive with all that that implies, then we have to believe without proof. Which, by the way, is not to suggest that there is no credible evidence, that there is no convincing evidence that Jesus Himself rose from, <clears throat> from that garden tomb outside of Jerusalem that pre-dawn Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. In fact, I came across a piece just a few weeks ago written by Tim Chafee in a magazine called Answers. Fascinated with what he shares, a, a compiled list of eight credible evidences that lead to the reasonable conclusion that Christ did indeed rise up from the dead on that Sunday morning. Two of, two of them, brand new to me. I want to share all eight of them with you. I want you to brood over them later today. I want you to have them so that you can share with someone else who's, trying to, who's struggling to believe. Take out your, your uh, Easter study guide right now. Let's go. Let's put all eight down. Thank you, friendly ushers. Let's go. Hold, hold your hand up. Our ushers have uh, extra study guides for you if you came in and didn't, imagine, didn't uh, manage to get an Easter bulletin. Put your hand up. You're going to want uh, these eight. And they're, while they're coming your way up in the balcony in here, let me just say to those of you who are watching right now on... Uh, live streaming. A blessed Easter to you, wherever you are on this planet right now. We're grateful you're here. I want you to have the same study guide, so let me put on the screen for you our website. For those of you watching on a television, 
There it is on your screen, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for a little mini-series that ends in a grand finale. And by the way, uh, next Sabbath, as we celebrate the cross, unforgettable moment. The title of the series is The Bondage Breaker. Today's homily is entitled The Easter Route. The Easter Route. Click on there. You'll see study guide, and you're good to go. Eight evidences, and I want to suggest to you that it is the eighth evidence that is the most convincing and compelling evidence for the risen Christ. So let's go. Number one, evidences. Number one, the testimony of Jesus. There's a list of verses. We will not look them up. The testimony of Jesus. It's noteworthy to mention here that all four Gospels record Jesus' declaration that I'm going to be, I'm going to be executed. Three days later, I will rise. Those were not whispered, whispered little insights. They became public knowledge. How do we know? Because after Jesus died, you remember, the priests go into the, Ro- the Roman uh, procurator, Pilate, and they say, listen, this deceiver, we heard him say, I will rise after three days. So, Mr. Governor, it makes sense. In case his disciples decide to steal his body away, let's lock him in that sepulcher. Seal it, please, sir. And by the way, the very fact that Lazarus, the whole community knows Lazarus, just a few days ago, after being dead for four days, has been raised by this Jesus of Nazareth. It's just possible anything could happen, so let's just be safe. All right? Evidence number one, Jesus' testimony. Evidence number two, many infallible proofs. Now, that's a direct quote, infallible, so put put it in between those quotation marks. Dr. Luke, the pagan physician turned Christian and historian. He wrote two books of the Bible, Luke and Acts, as you well know. He uses this word, and so we'll go, to the, we'll go to the screen, Acts chapter 1, as he begins his second book, the former account he's writing now, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taking up, taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, now here it comes, by many infallible proofs. This pagan converted to Christianity writes, many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke is describing the post-resurrection appearances of Christ during that 40-day period as infallible evidence, infallible, that He, in fact, rose. In fact, the Bible actually lists a number of appearances, not Luke, but Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you have the reference there, Paul describes... In fact, the New Testament, actually, uh, there are over 10 appearances of the, of the risen Christ. Paul lists a handful of them here in 1 Corinthians 15. First of all, Jesus appeared all alone to Peter. He appeared all alone to James. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to 500 witnesses at one time, not to mention his appearing to the women, to Mary Magdalene, this little couple from Emmaus, over 10 evidences. Ten times he appeared. By the way, Paul is assuming because he's, he's chronicling these living. They're all alive still. Paul says, listen, you don't believe me? This is what he's implying. You don't believe me? You contact them for yourself. You'll find out. They saw the risen Christ. That's what he's assuming. He's implying. And by the way, not even in a court of law today could you easily dismiss such eyewitness testimony as submitted evidence. Number three, evidence number three, the conversion of skeptical witnesses, James and Paul. Now, here's one of them that was new. I said there were two that were new to me. This was new to me. I never thought about this. It makes sense. 
Listen, critics have maintained that the disciples were in such a malaise that they simply had hallucinations. That's what's going on. They charge that the disciples were either fabricating a story to cover their disappointment or concocting a tale to some sort for some sort of psychological wish fulfillment. The critics cannot respond adequately to the fact that two of Jesus' most vocal antagonists themselves became followers of the risen Christ. It's embarrassing, but it's true. James, let's, let's, let's look in the boat. James, by the way, is James the stepbrother of Jesus. In Mark 3, trust me, there is no, there's no love lost. In Mark 3, James declares to the public, the man, the young man is out of his mind. He's gone bonkers. He does not believe at all. But Paul says somewhere after Christ's resurrection, he appears personally to James. And guess what? All of a sudden, in Acts 1, 40 days later, James is in the upper room with the rest of the believers. Amazing. And by the way, not only is he just a disciple, he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. <laughs> wow. And Paul, of course, we all know the story of Paul, transformed from this, this vicious arch enemy of the infant church transformed by a single personal encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, and suddenly Paul becomes, arguably, as he lives throughout immeasurable suffering, finally beheaded, Paul becomes, arguably, the greatest Christian who has ever lived, and he was the great antagonist. Look at there are enough people that knew James and Paul before and after. You have a huge public statement. Take a look at this evidence. All right, number four, fearful to fearless. Fearful to fearless. Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to his closest followers is a narrative of fear-ridden to fearless. I mean, how else do we, do we explain the disciples' fearless testimony? They spent the rest of their lives saying, he's alive, he's alive. We saw him, and they all died except for little John boy. They all died martyr's death. How, how do you explain that? You don't die for a falsehood. Evidence number five, the empty tomb. Don't dismiss this. The empty tomb. The fact that Christ's body was no longer in the tomb is also consistent with the Bible's claim that he rose. And by the way, it's not the disciples that are saying the tomb is empty. Guess who's saying it? A squadron of Roman pagan soldiers have all announced the tomb is empty. We saw what happened. Desire of Ages said the, 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 the ashen faces of the chief priests, the lips are moving. Nothing's coming out of Caiaphas. They're leaving. Stop, he finds his voice. We'll pay you. We'll pay you. Here's what you say. You say that while we were sleeping, we'll take care of the governor. You won't, get, you won't be penalized. While we were sleeping, the disciples stole his body. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're asleep, how can you know what's happening around you? When you lie, you get caught. They know the tomb is empty. Uh, number six, the, the existence of the church. That's a powerful. You have a whole community built around the resurrection of Christ. Three, in the third millennium, what are we doing? We're acknowledging it. A whole community worldwide, one point some billion Christians on this planet believing it. Tim Chafee put his words on the screen. The reality of the resurrection was central to the message the apostles preached. The book of Acts, almost universally recognized as reliable history of the period, claims that these men spoke about the resurrection repeatedly. Even critics today, by the way, acknowledge that the message of the resurrection is the very heart of what the New Testament church took to the entire world. 
Evidence number seven. This is the other one I didn't know. Remember, there are only eight, and I think the eighth is the most powerful. But here's number seven. I didn't know this one. The principle of embarrassment. That's two R's and two S's. Uh, every time I write it on my laptop, spell checker says, you are wrong. All right, the principle of embarrassment. In other words, why would the writers of history invent details that do not seem to help their cause? Please. I mean, if you're going to have, if you're going to have eyewitnesses of the risen Savior, you might as well, you might as well have some, some well-known dignitary like Caiaphas or, or, or Pilate or King Herod. But instead, who do you, who's the first eyewitness? You got a woman, number one. Number two, a fallen woman. Number three, a demoniac woman out of whom seven demons have been cast. Bad choice of a leading figure. How embarrassing. I mean, nobody in Israel would. You, you couldn't even bring a... In first century Israel, you could not even bring a woman into a court of law. They would not accept her testimony. So now you have a woman. Chafee writes... Either the writers were quite foolish or exceedingly clever, or they wrote precisely what happened. I personally believe they wrote precisely what happened. And as Beekner wrote, you have to believe it without proof. Eight evidences. The eighth, I believe, being the greatest, most convincing of all. Jot it down. Changed hearts and lives in later generations. Men, women, children, teenagers, young adults, the planet over, who have met the risen Christ and whose lives, here's the point, whose lives have been changed. I once was lost, but now I, I'm found. The, the, the slave trader John Newton wrote, you have a before and an after picture. You, the, the world says, how do you explain this? Yeah, hey, by the way, I want to say to you, those, those of you who are living in this postmodern pluralistic society, I need, to, I need you to know that a personal testimony is sometimes considered the most convincing of evidences because the critic, the skeptic cannot gainsay your testimony. How convincing? The change? I want you to consider this dramatic assertion by Paul. Here's our little Easter passage for this homily. Ephesians chapter 1. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Didn't bring a Bible, pull out your tablet. Whatever you use, just open it up, please. Grab the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, it would be page uh, 787 in your Pew Bible. I'm in the NIV, the New International Version. I tell you what, this, this is stunning. Now, you're going to have to start thinking. Okay, this other was just to kind of get you ready, but you really now have to start thinking. You've got to engage your mind. Okay, here we go. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart... This is the only place in sacred literature that that phrase appears. The eyes of your heart. What's he mean? He means the, your, your, your very spirit. I pray that you see. I pray that you sense. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know... Here are three, three things to know. Number one, the hope to which God has called you. We just celebrated that. Number two, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. And now here it comes, number three, verse 19. And His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead. Hit the pause button right there. You know what Paul is saying? He said, hey, guys, whoa, 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 whoa. I want the eyes of your heart to see the incomparably great power at work in the lives, your lives, the lives of those who believe. 
I want you to see yourself as the world sees you. I want you to see yourself as God sees you, the power of a changed life. I want you to see that I am changing you. We had a beautiful, by the way, beautiful prayer and anointing service this past Wednesday night. Wow. Two and a half hours, people just staying, waiting. There's seven prayer stations here, wanting to be anointed, wanting somebody to pray. I tell you, for my partner, Emmanuel and me, it, it was a very moving experience because it, you, you, you're just sharing this, this moment with someone who's saying, I, I, I have this need. I, I have this struggle. I have, I have this family member. I, I, I need God to do something. I need to be healed. You know, people went home, and I know this. They went home with the evidence of divine healing in their spirit. The eyes of their heart opened to see. You went home, some of you to your dorm room. You went home, some of you to your house in the community. You went home, and you could see it on your face. That's what Paul is saying. Don't discount that. Don't discount what the incomparably great power of God is doing in you. That's evidence. I want you to realize that. You're changed. You're redirected. You're transformed life. I want the world to see. That's what Paul is saying. I want the world to see. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. It's not there. I don't see that. You're just kind of reading this in. No, it's there. I'll show you. Okay, let's go back. Verse 19 again. Remember, Paul says, I'm praying that you, the eyes of your heart will be open. Now, I need you to hang on just a little bit longer. You'll be fine. Just hang on. Keep thinking. It, it, Paul says in verse 18, I want the eyes of your heart to be opened. I want you to see this. What do you want us to see? Number three, verse 19, he says, I want you to see God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That's the gathered community of faith. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, keep reading. Verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. By the way, that's the same Greek word, nekros, from whence comes our word necrotic, speaking of death. That's the same word that describes Christ in the tomb that Sabbath of Easter. He's sleeping. He's dead. The corpse is dead. Paul says, that was you. That was you in your transgressions and sins, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That would be the devil. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul says, come on, it's not just you. He says, me too, me too. And this is really important because there are a lot of people in this addiction series that are saying, oh boy, you'll preach it, boy. Just preach it. Lay it on them. No, this is for you. You've got your own private addiction and you know it. But it's nothing more than you're sucking the poison of your own ego. You're addicted. Paul says, it's all of us. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, among those who are dead. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our appetite, our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, hold on. But here it goes. Oh, I love this. Verse 4. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. You are in the tomb. You've been in the tomb. Paul is declaring unequivocally, categorically, 
that the divine power that blasted the doors of that stone off of Christ's sepulcher is the same divine power that blasts the stone off of the grave of your addiction, a grave that has held you entombed all these years. Same power, same God. Boom, when that door is gone. No longer ball and chain on your ankles. You've been set free. That's what Paul is saying. Same power, same God. Oh, jot it down. Paul's inescapable point. The power that freed Christ from his grave is the identical power that can free us from addiction. Same power. Whatever your addiction, you addicted to yourself, this will free you. Only that power, by the way, can free you. You cannot free yourself. You have already found out. Which means, jot this down, the devil can no more hold you in your sepulcher of sin than he could hold Christ in the tomb of death. Desire of Ages describes the, the legions of hell amassed around that sealed sepulcher. Hold this, hold this piece of earth. Come in. And they could not. They could not. Incomparably great power. That's the power. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, the eighth evidence, that's why this is the most compelling evidence of all. They know the before picture. They now see the after picture. And what can your friends say? What can your family say? What can anybody say? Something has happened to this girl. Something has happened to this boy. There is power. And it's the resurrection power of Christ that brought you dead in your trespasses and sin. Brought you back to life in Christ. Wow. I repeat. Your changed life is the greatest evidence of all that Jesus rose from the grave. So never hold back your testimony. Those of you that, that God did something very supernatural to Wednesday night, you cannot hold, you must not hold it back. Tell. It's in the telling that the kingdom has grown. Because if God could do that for you, I'll bet you he could do that for me. That's how it works. So those of you who were anointed the other evening, those of you who came forward for prayer, you've been coming forward at the end of the service for prayer, those of you who would turn in, by the way, hundreds, prayer requests on the back of the Connect card. We're getting the Connect card in just a moment. In fact, just this last week, Lilani here in our office, she types, she types these up for me. I went through every, every single comment, every single prayer request. Got them here. With names. Some are anonymous, as you're about to find out. Let me read a few. Boy, I tell you what, these are coming from people's hearts that are, that are immersed in this prayer for deliverance. Here's one. Ask the Lord. It's all handwritten. Ask the Lord to help me with my, and then psh, the addiction is identified. Ask the Lord to help me with my addiction. I am destroying my body as well as myself. Somebody pray for me. Ask him to help me. I don't take this lightly. I was amazed how many of these are spouses asking for deliverance from their spouses. 
that they're married to addictions. I was amazed. Here's one from a wife. Pray for my children's father to be healed from his addiction. Please pray for my younger brother who's addicted to to him. Wayward Christian, angry with us, angry with God. College student here, pray for my family, pray for my addiction, pray for my campus. Here's another, uh, uh, here's a wife. Please ask Jesus to help my husband give his addiction to Jesus. You know, we see each other every day. We say, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. Hey, high five. Nice to have you in church, by the way. Isn't God good? We have no idea what people are struggling with here. Well, we have these grow groups to somehow get out of the big and into the small. And then this is anonymous. I'm going to read it right now. The person just turned this in last Sabbath. The person could be sitting here right now. I don't know if it's a man. I don't know if it's a woman. I don't know if it's young, middle, aged. I don't know if it's college, community. I have no idea. Pray for my life. May I not take it and end it over my mistakes. I tell you what, I'm reading this for the first time and the Holy Spirit says, stop. I've been praying for this person. I have no idea for whom I'm praying. But I need to take this moment. I, 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 can, you, can you not help but take this moment? If you're here and you're listening, I need you to know That the enemy of Christ, who, by the way, is also your enemy and mine, that the enemy of Christ has sold you a bill of goods. He has told you a lie. You are not hopeless. Satan knows you are one prayer away from the movement of heaven to begin your journey to freedom. He is going to hold you with everything he's got. And he is a liar. I'm telling you. I need you to know, if you're here, maybe you're watching live streaming today, I don't know. But if you're within the sound of our voices here, I need you to know that that's what Good Friday is all about. Jesus died for whatever's holding you. And he, that's what Easter Sunday is about. He not only died for whatever is holding you, but he rose on Sunday to give you the power to be released from whatever is holding you. That's what this weekend's all about. And you already know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. If you had been the only sinner on this planet, God would have sacrificed himself to save just you. You are loved. I don't know the circumstances that have brought you to such a place of hopelessness that you're saying, pray for me so that I don't end my life from the mistakes I have made. Now, mistakes, look around you. Anybody you touch is living with mistakes. Have you, have you sinned away divine mercy and grace? Are you kidding? You wouldn't have put this down on that card. The Holy Spirit wouldn't have said, hey, Dwight, look at this one. Pray for this one, will you? You are not lost. You are not abandoned, and you are on the cusp this Easter weekend of the greatest chapter of your life. Keep your life. Come to somebody. Come. I'll talk to somebody. I'll talk to you. Talk to anybody you trust. Don't keep 
this a secret. Come. There is incomparably great power unleashed in an empty tomb once upon a time. And that power is poised now with all the forces of eternity ready to do battle to save just you. So don't quit, please. I end with a quotation. A hundred years ago, these words were written. I put it on the screen for you. Christ's death. I love this. I just love this. Fill it in. Christ's death and resurrection, resurrection have opened before every soul an unlimited source of power from which to draw. Did you catch that word, unlimited? Unlimited source of power. You can never drain it. It's not, it is a battery that never loses its power. Unlimited source of power, no matter who you are or what I've done. That power is accessible to you and me right now through the risen Christ. Evidence number eight, I believe, is the most convincing evidence of all because it is the evidence of your changed life. And your changed life, sir, is going to win it's going to win friends for Jesus for eternity. When He changes you, when He transforms you, tell the story to somebody else. Don't keep it secret. And for that, this Easter Sabbath, I want to go on record saying, Amen and Amen. How about you? Amen and Amen. Take out your Connect card, please. I want, to, I want to end with a beautiful gospel hymn. But first off, we, we need to take the next step. Guests, we're so glad. I see we have guests here today, and our ushers are moving quickly to uh, receive these cards. Guests, we're glad that you came to worship with us on this Easter weekend. We invite you to do what we do at, at the end of every uh, time in the Word. We fill out this Connect card. Put your name, email address, please. The first time, how many times we've been a guest here, whatever other information that's valuable or you're willing to share. Then turn the card over. This is the next step side of the card. Here, here, are, here are decisions we can make on this Easter Sabbath. Number one, I want the unlimited power of my risen Savior to set me free. Is there anybody here that doesn't want that power to set you free? No, I'm, I'm putting a check mark. Join me there. Number two, I seek the unlimited power of my risen Lord to keep me free. The good news is not only does He set us free, He keeps us free. That's the whole deal. That's the real deal. All wrapped up the incomparably great power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, number three, because of His miracle, I choose to face tomorrow with confidence and without fear. Without fear. You want to come up after the service? We'll have some prayer team members right up here at the front. They'll pray with you. Oregon will be in a glorious post slew. Don't worry about that. You just come. You'll hear the prayer, and God will hear that prayer. This spring, let's go forward with the Lord of the empty tomb. Let's pray. Oh, God, what can we say except thank you with all our hearts? Thank you from the hearts that have experienced already the grave-shattering, addiction-crumbling power of our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. Thank you from all the hearts that have been set free from addiction. And, oh, God, thank you from all our hearts that are on the cusp of that deliverance, that are on the cusp of that victory. 
I pray for every man, woman, teenager, young adult who's here. I pray for those who are saying, there just is no way. Oh, God, cut through. Cut through that deception with the good news that there is sufficient power, unlimited power for her, for him. And one day, may we look back to the spring of 2014 and praise you for the deliverance the risen Christ has achieved. Receive our morning tithes and offerings. They come from grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.